faulty assumptions is what we've given this title um, when others decide to reject us. Now, we're going to start by looking not into the Old Testament, which is where we spend a majority of our time pr prior to this week, but because uh, Exodus is where it talks about the account of Moses and the deliverance of Israel from the you know, Egyptian bondage and the confrontation with Pharaoh and the plagues and the Ten Commandments. Just everything's there. We say, well, why are we going to the, a New Testament book, specifically to the book of Acts, as our key passage? And there's an answer for that uh, that maybe a lot of times at first glance we wouldn't necessarily appreciate. But in Acts, the seventh chapter, we find the recounting of the history of Moses by a man named Stephen. And Stephen is also in his own right a notable figure in the early church. He was one of the first deacons. A deacon was a servant leader that was appointed by the apostles in this case. And some, they, were, they were men of, of, of quality and uh, capacity and they were uh, given the privilege of serving the larger community of believers. And they were examples. Now, Stephen is known as a deacon, but he was also known as a servant leader, but he was also noted for being an exceptional speaker and communicator. And in the seventh chapter of Acts, we see a portion of a message that he shared. I mean, it's, it's quite an astonishing thing. He gives this amazing, succinct, but expansive historical summary of God's dealing with Israel. He starts with Abraham, Abraham and he, he ends with Jesus. And uh, he's sharing with the elders um, who are not believers in Jesus as Messiah. They're so upset with him that what happens is after he shares what we're about to look at, um, we're only looking at a portion of it, that they literally seize him, drag him out to the outside outsides of the city, and they, and they stone him to death. And he becomes, Stephen is known as the first Christian martyr, the first one to give his life, as, at least in part because of his testimony uh, to Jesus. Now, one of the interesting nuances or just details that maybe we might overlook is that when that happened, when they took him and drug him out of the city, this Stephen, and began to, to stone him, the elders at first, these, they, they laid there, they, wanted, they all had cloaks, so before they could throw the stone, they had to take their cloaks off, and they laid them at the, at the feet, or they had a young man watch them in those, those coats as they stoned Stephen to death. And, and that young man was a prodigy, a religious prodigy, a, a considered the most outstanding student of the most outstanding teacher of their day, whose name was Gamaliel, was the teacher. And his star pupil was Saul of Tarsus. Saul, of course, later becomes Paul. Paul is holding the coats of those who stoned the first Christian witness to death. I don't think he ever forgot that moment. But the words that Stephen shared prior to his life coming to a close on this side of eternity are recorded in Acts 7. What's helpful about them is they give us a perspective on Moses that we might not necessarily get in full by reading Exodus 2. There's an additional piece of commentary in there that I would like us to look at. And so if we can, let's look at Acts 7, verses 17 through 30, and we're going to go through this. One of the things, again, that I would like to just point out, I know I've already alluded to it, is that last week we talked about the decision of Moses as being a kind of a crucial thing that he did um, in terms of just accepting the fact that he could no longer um, be okay with where he was, that God was calling him to a point of decision. We're going to see, we're going to take a look at some very similar information, but we're going to look at it from a whole different perspective, more of a relational perspective. So we'll get to that in a moment. But verse 17, 
Acts 7. But when the, when the time of the promise drew near where God had sworn to Abraham, so this is Stephen, he's talking, he's declaring this. He's saying, when he had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and they multiplied in Egypt till there was another king, a pharaoh, who arose, who did not know Joseph. Joseph had been a savior to the land of Egypt at a time of great difficulty. And the pharaoh had invited Joseph to bring his, his family into Egypt and live in the land of Goshen. They had prospered in an amazing way. But the Bible is kind of in its own poetic way. Stephen says this, that there actually came a point, though, where there was a pharaoh who didn't really care that much about what Joseph's contribution had been to Egypt. And in fact, enough generations had passed where he saw them as more of a problem, such a problem that they wanted to control the population. But they couldn't control it. So look at what happens. It says, this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies, that is, abandon their babies, we know that the, that, so that they might not live. The, the decree went out that the only way to really deal with this problem, this Hebrew problem, is to basically have the male children killed at birth. And so the decree was that they were to be thrown in the Nile. The midwives who were there were supposed to make sure that it happened. Uh, of course, we know that Moses' parents, and we talked about this a few weeks back, they rebelled against the king's command. And, and even though they, didn't, they couldn't do much, they did what they could, and they took a chance. And they, out of the bulrushes, they crafted an ark of sorts, and they filled it with pitch, a kind of way of making it so that it wouldn't sink, it would float, and they placed their baby, Moses, into that, into that ark, and they said, Lord, perhaps, perhaps you will save him. And, it, and we're told what happens. It says that at this time Moses was born, Verse 20, was well-pleasing to God. He was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, that again, put on the, on the river, it says that Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. It was a, a stunning, remarkable, God-ordained thing. And Moses, we're told in verse 22, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now that we are, is something we are not told specifically in the Older Testament's account. We can read into it. We can, it would have been something we would have surmised. But Stephen makes it very clear that, Mo, let me, he says, he's basically saying this. Let me tell you the kind of training Moses had. He was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, we read that. You, you understand, we, Egypt was one of the most advanced cultures of its day. I mean, it was, it's stunning. That, that would have meant that, that Moses would have had access to, because he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he would have access to the, the best training that existed at that time in the land of Egypt, which was one of the most advanced civilizations of his day. Uh, that means he would have been someone who had been trained in science, astronomy, medicine, and also certainly in, of course, mathematics. We still to this day marvel at some of the mathematics and the architecture and the understanding that the Egyptians exhibited. We think about the pyramid. It's still a wonder in so many ways. Moses lived at that place, and he functioned as a participant at the highest level of their society. In many ways, the Egyptian society was just like the very pyramid itself. It had a very narrow, powerful class, and then at the bottom, it had a, low, a lower class that was massive. And Moses was part of the tip of the pyramid. He was trained in all the way. We, we need, that, that's an important thing for us to understand. He was exposed to the highest levels of understanding that Egypt had to offer. A world power. Um, Moses, we're told, one more thing, it says that he says he was also, this, we wouldn't have gotten this from what Moses says about himself, <clears throat> but we're told that he was mighty, in, look, in what? In verse 22, in words and in deeds. It would appear that in addition to all the other training, or we would call it higher education that he had received, Moses also um, was, if not eloquent, at least highly trained in the art of rhetoric. So he was more than a capable public speaker. 
And in fact, we're told that he was not only powerful in words, but also in deeds, that he was an achiever of great capacity. So this is the picture that we're given of this figure, Moses. Well-trained, highly educated, extraordinarily learned in, in a variety of systems, powerful in his words, powerful in his deeds, his presence. He is a person of prominence who has something about how he carries himself and how he's known to be. He is, he is a great man, an up-and-coming leader, a, a, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then we're told, though, that when he was 40 years old, look at verse 23, when he was 40 years old, and by the way, a lot of things happen around 40, I'm going to point out here. The, the 40s are one of those seasons where either you're approaching it, coming out, it's, it's an interesting time of life where a lot of people grow restive. It's a time where you still feel young, but at the same, you, have, you have energy and vigor usually, but you realize that, that things have changed a lot. And, and it, it is not uncommon for people about this period in life to, for, to, to begin to look at things in a whole different way and begin to evaluate and think about where things are going in a slightly different way than what has been before. There's something about that marking point. It's often a time where people weigh out where they've been, think about where, where they're going. And I, I, think, I think it's worth noting that it was at this period in the life of Moses, his post-youth, if you will, that he wa- while he was enjoying, let's just put it this way, he was enjoying the high life. He was a person of privilege. He had power, he had Anything he really wanted, um, in terms of just was made, was made available to him. He had um, perceived pedigree, if nothing else. He he really had all the world. And yet, I think there must have come a point. The Bible seems to indicate it so that that he couldn't. He, I guess you could say he felt compelled to respond to something because there was an urge. And who knows? how long he was trying to work through it, but he felt comp- you know, compelled to respond to this urge that he perhaps had been ignoring for a number of years that, that somehow maybe how could he reconcile the fact that you know, while he lived so well with such great privilege and opportunity and honor, his people, and he knew they were his people, were, were suffering not just mildly but severely afflicted, enslaved, uh, that, that he was literally living off the backs of his own people. And it was a very difficult thing that he must have had to work through while he is enjoying everything. His own family is suffering as slaves. And perhaps in his heart he had always sensed, but maybe even people had told him directly in different ways, do you understand, Moses? Where you are is not a coincidence. Do you think it's just a coincidence that you were found in the Nile? That somehow God, of all the boys that were born, that were little babies that came, all the male children, that you alone, why do you think you alone have lived? Why do you think you have, have got to where you are? Why do you think God has allowed it? Could it be that God has another plan? That you're part of that plan? That that plan affects our people? Do you understand, Moses? Maybe Moses, it seems like he got to the point where he began to realize that God was calling him to try to do something that he could no longer reconcile the great disconnect between where he was and where his people were and how they were suffering and how God had a plan for them. And yet, what, was that? what did it all mean? You, could see, you can hear Moses you know, working through that. And notice what it says. Go back to verse 23. It says, And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So he wanted to go see and take a closer look at them and how they were suffering. And it says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, and we looked at this last week, he defended and avenged him who was 
oppressed. So he get, goes down to take a closer look at the plight of his people, implying that for a large part of his life, he never actually did that. And as he did on this particular occasion, he's, watch, he's, he's watching as one of them is being beaten. And so beaten that he, and we know that Moses, one of the issues that Moses has, and it'll show up again, and we've talked about it, is, is he's got an anger. And when he sees the Egyptian beating his countrymen, or his own brothers, as it were, as it's called, his, his anger, he, it says he, he not only defends him, but he avenges him. He, he kills the Egyptian, and he buries him under the, under the sand. And this is what we're told here. And he supposed that his brethren, look what it says in verse 25. It says he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. So there's some recognition. At this point, Moses is thinking, you know what? I'm giving this all up because God obviously in some way wants to use me to deliver, my, to deliver his people. That's the burden he feels. It says that he, and he assumed that his brethren would have understood that it was God who would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand it. And the next day, look what happens. He appeared to the two of them as they were fighting. So he goes back down the next day. He sees two of, his Hebrew, of, his, of the Hebrew men fighting amongst themselves. And he gets in there, and, he, and he, what does he say? He says, he tries to reconcile them. He says, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong? Why are you wrong one another? Why are you treating one another? You're not enemies. And it says that he who did his neighbor wrong, who, who was the initiator, pushed him away. And he said to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? 28. Do you want to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And at that point, fear began to run all over Moses as he realized, oh, my goodness, if you know, it's just a matter of time before. Um, and it says here that then at the same, Moses fled. He fled for his life. And indeed, Exodus tells us Pharaoh, Pharaoh was on his tail. He, runs, he leaves Egypt as a fugitive, a murderer. And he's running for his life. And it says in verse 29, he becomes a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Now, the land of Midian, you can still go to the region today, uh, east of Egypt, south of Palestine, right above the Gulf of Aqaba. It's there. It's a wilderness place in, in so many ways. In Moses' day... It, he runs across at a well through unique circumstances that we're going to just take a look at in the coming weeks a little bit more. He meets a man whose name is Ruel. He's also known as Jethro. As he meets this man, he is hired by him as a shepherd, um, and he ultimately marries the first oldest daughter of Ruel, whose name is Zephora. They have two sons. And the Bible says, and here it is in verse 30, it's the last verse there, it says, And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and a fire and a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now, um, we, I just read that verse real fast. Um, and I read that first phrase really fast, too. And you know why? And 40 years had passed. You know, how, you know how long 40 years is? That's a long time. 40 years in the wilderness. Nothing. A lot of things happened to people in 40 years. So this is the picture that we're given. Now, I would, I, would, I would like, in the time that we have left, to turn back a little bit. Again, I mentioned the big decision of Moses to give up the passing pleasures of sin, as it was called, the treasures of Egypt, the temporal treasures of Egypt. He made a decision to identify himself with the people of God and to suffer with them rather than to enjoy the temporal pleasures. See, that was the, the phrase in Hebrews. It talks about the decision of Moses. That's the big picture. I want to look at the little picture of this exchange. I actually would like to ask us to think about how what happened here to Moses plays out in our lives relationally. And so I want to put something on the board here. Number one, I want to suggest that there are going to be times 
when despite our best intentions, we will be misunderstood. And I think this just comes out so clearly here. And it happens all the time in relationships. I mean, it certainly happens in marriage. Cheryl, my wife and I have been married 25 years. Last August, this last August, it was his 25th anniversary. We were talking about um, just our lives together, and we were chuckling together. We were talking about, you know, just you, you create a life. You create memories. You create, you laugh. You cry together. You, you, you fight. You forgive. Um, you try to keep love growing. You try to stay committed we were talking about how neither one of us had ever seen a home, our own homes last as long as our, ours has. And what a, what a testimony to the grace of God that was. And what a, what, how grateful we were for that. And uh, the reason I share this, this is the only story I really have, but we were talking about how, you know, we remember, remember that one, I was, last night we were talking about it, I said, you remember that one, one couple we ran into when they were, we were married for a few years and they, they were going to get married and, and, he, he said to her, he says, you know, we've, we've come to a decision. And we said, really? He said, yeah. They said, yeah. We just thought, you know, we're never going to argue when we're married. <laughs> and I said, wow. You know, I, I, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, do you know how amazingly naive you are? Do you, do you have any clue? And, you know, you laugh because so much of, of any relationship, it's not just, it's not just uh, between a husband and wife, it, friendships, family members, our children, parents, grandparents, extended family, uh, people that we're just close to over time, they might as well be family to us, long, long haul relationships, coworkers who we've grown, grown close to, I mean, whatever. We, these, this, this fact is that anything that involves people is going to have conflict at times. We're not always going to do everything right. And I think sometimes the closer we are in terms of our intimacy, the more likely it is that we can take for granted people. And therefore, we might say and do things that, that maybe we would not normally do if we had a, didn't have the um, relationship that we seem to have. And unfortunately, instead of being grateful, a lot of times we take things for granted. That's just a lot of human nature. And I think the Lord wants to keep reminding us to, to work at things like love and, and to work at our relationships and to value our friendships as best as we can because we can lose them. They're fragile. They're not as... Things are not as strong as they seem. And there are times where genuinely people who care for one another hurt one another and misunderstand one another. And I, and I see a situation, and I think sometimes we will, we will say things. And I think the key, we were, in my mind, one of the keys is to, how do you argue in a healthy way so there's not long-term residue and, and, and bad things that are done and said that ultimately just become uh, huge issues and see, I, I do believe that the Lord wants to teach us how to, how to be able to sometimes even disagree and, yes, misunderstand one another. There will be times when we do that. But hopefully we can do it in ways that don't cause you know, irreparable damage. It's about forgiving. It's about um, choosing, listen, choosing, choosing not to take hold of an offense or a hurt and just harbor it. Um, I think some things we just need to let die out, like a, like a fire that just needs to be let go. And if we're all so consumed about squeezing justice out of every conflict, we will ultimately do more damage than good. And I'm not saying there's not a time to confront, there's not a time to contend for things that are, unhe that are unhealthy and need to be addressed. I think God calls us to live in truth. But the fact of the matter is, if a lot of times we, are, we, are, we want to squeeze out every ounce of justice 
in this, and we misunderstand things. We not only misunderstand, but we are misunderstood. We not only hurt, we also are hurt. And that's part of it, and I think the Lord wants to teach us to be a, gr- a gracious, forgiving people, that that's a general rule to live by, a general way of living. It's the way of Jesus, and it brings life. It does. It brings life and longevity to things instead of the stench of death. Because wherever you have something being squeezed out all the time, and no one lets someone, no one forgives, that kind of environment is toxic and it just kills things. Again, a lot of times we just need to be gracious and ask God to help. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But one of the things that Moses, I, 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 let me show us what I mean by this. Go, go back to verse, we're going to put verse 25 up. Look at, look at this. Because we read it, but a lot of times we're going to be misinterpreted. And our good intentions are not going to be understood or appreciated. In fact, they're going to be misunderstood. Now, what does it say here? For he supposed, it says Moses supposed his brethren would have understood that it was God who was going to deliver, you know, deliver them by his, his hand. But what does it say? But they did not understand. He just assumed. He assumed his, they would know. Surely they, they would know this, right? I mean, listen. But what's clear is that they didn't understand what was in his heart. They didn't read his heart. They didn't see him as the deliverer. And they didn't respond the way that he thought they would respond. Surely you know. No, we don't know. People, even people we love, will not always appreciate our efforts on their behalf. That's just the truth. And may not even, look, there are times where we do something that we think we're going out of our way. And we may not even get a fleck of gratitude. I mean, not even a thank you in a whispered tone. I mean, nothing. In fact, we did, it nice, we did it out of a good heart, and now by the time we're done, we're mad because you, you didn't even say thank you. There was no not acknowledgement of it. In fact, if anything, there are times where we do something out of our heart, and we're, going, we're extending, and instead of, and that may happen to us as well, by the way. Remember that. We need to, but we do it, and we, instead of even getting appreciation or an acknowledgement or anything, we, we get not just silence. We get an accusation uh, almost criticism, you're just trying to manipulate the process here, right? And that is like, what do you know? You've, you've totally misunderstood my motive here. It's not what I'm doing. You know, I, I, look, I look at this. I mean, what do we do when people don't respond the way that we assume they would to our gestures? Or what do we do when it's like, in Moses' case, do you recognize that I'm not just doing this? I, you think I'm putting my life on the line for you? God's doing something in my life. You, surely you see this, right? I go back to the scene. It's like Moses says, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I put, I put my neck on the line for you guys. Uh, because I, you know why I did it? Because I felt like God was calling me to do this for you. Don't you see? And they say, you know what? The only thing we saw is that you went and killed the Egyptian yesterday and buried him in the sand. And you, you know what? And the implication is you murdered that Egyptian and now you're trying to, to get in the middle of our, look, you think you're better than us. Right? But I'm going to ask you a question. And this is the, see, Moses gets in there, right? He, he says, don't break, break it up, guys. Don't do this. You're brothers. And you, you, he said, no, you think you're better than us. Who made you, and this is the word, who made you a judge and an arbitrator? Who gave you the role of the guy who's going to tell us what to do? We don't recognize it. Rich boy. <laughs> Took a little liberty there, but that's what's implied. <laughs> Why don't you get back into your fancy chariot (laughs) with your fancy clothes? Because I don't know if you've noticed, you're in the wrong district. We don't recognize anything. 
we don't want you. And that leads to the second piece here. Not only are there going to be times when we're going to be misunderstood, but there are going to be times when we're going to be literally pushed away. And I do, I do differentiate between the two because it's one thing to say, you know what, it, it just, it, I assume that you would understand and you didn't understand. That's one thing. There's another thing to have someone say, you know what, you know, why don't you get away from me? And I'm going to show you, let me, let me, look, pushed away by people, that is hard. In fact, in, in the 27th verse, and we'll just relook at it again, and we'll put this one again, put it up just because it, it, I think by looking at it, you see it. But he who did his neighbor wrong, what does it say he, did, he does? He pushed him away. So he comes to him and he says, don't fight. And he got, this is what, okay, you read the verse and we go, oh yeah, he pushed him. Get away from me. Push it. There's a physicality to that. Get away from me. Don't you, don't you, who are you? Who are you? You don't tell us what to do. It's a push away. You see it? You can feel it. It's there. It's like, get away from me. And there are times where people, when we're trying, and what is Moses doing? I'm trying to look, don't fight your brothers. Get away from me. Who made you? Who made you any judge over us? Don't you even think about it. Don't you tell us what to do. Get away from us. Right? That's the, that's the passion in the verse. And there are going to be times in our lives where it may not be a physical push but it might as well be something close to it because it's like we're trying to help. We're trying to bring peace. We're trying to talk about truth that's going to be healing. Or maybe we're feeling like, I'm just trying to, to do something here. And you, you know what we get? Get away from me. And you know, there's always a fear of confronting things because if you, you can risk a relationship sometimes by trying to tell someone the truth or at least how you're seeing it. And, 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 it, and if you see it's, that they're in a tough place and they're going to hurt each other, or you're going to hurt themselves, and you, and you care, and then to get involved. You see, I don't think we realize sometimes in our own lives how much that does affect us. Maybe we do. And I think I was talking to some who, who were just sharing with me how, how really hurt and disregarded they have felt by being pushed away and when their heart was to help and to try and to just basically be told, I don't want, I want anything to do with you. And how difficult that can be, you know, especially when we feel like something, we have something to contribute, we have something to bring, we have something to offer. Because I care, I love it, you know, it doesn't matter, get away from me. And there's this idea, is, you know, there are, life is filled with moments where, where this, this happens. And it's when, and, and I'll tell you, when it does, and I say, well, what do we do? What do they say? Well, what do we do about that? There are, when that happens to us, we really need the grace of God. And we need to, listen, and I'm not just saying, like, we'll, as followers of Jesus, a lot of times we'll say, you know what, give it to the Lord. Okay, well, you know, place it in his hands. Well, what does that mean? Um, I do think there are times, but hear the wisdom here. There are times where we are being so consumed in a rejection are so angered by someone who's pushing us away and we're trying to help and we care so much, we want to help and we, we desperately want to try to rescue that situation and it's, they're not just killing themselves, they're killing us, right? And, and they won't let us in. And there are, there are going to be times where, and every one of us is going to have it most likely at some point in our lives where we're going to have to be okay. Listen, I mean, okay with the fact that we can't make someone do what they don't want to do. Sometimes we're going to just have to accept that, and that's not easy. Sometimes we're just going to have to say, Lord, I, I, I do give this to you. And what does that mean? I, for me, it helps me 
uh, to think of the literal, uh, literally to, to pray and, I've, and, I've, and just say, Lord, I put this in your hands. I do. I just ta- I take it and I, 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 you know, I'm so, because sometimes we're so hurt, we're so angry, we're so bitter, we're so resentful that we, because we're not being allowed or we're being disregarded, that it just, it really does affect us. And then we hold it. It can happen in a friendship, happens in families all the time. Uh, and it begins to define us. It's like um, one of my professors in school used to say to me, and I remember it, it, it was so simple, and yet I go, wow, that's why you're the professor, right? Because he goes, you know, Terry, what you won't let be won't let you be. I thought, hmm. <laughs> but I got it. I said, you know what? I know what you mean. Because when you hold it so hard, you keep thinking about it, keep mulling over it, keep nurturing it, it's, it starts to define you. What you won't let be won't let you be. Leave it with the Lord. There's some, some people say, you know, you just come and you say, Lord, help me. I place this at your feet. It's almost like you imagine yourself placing at the feet of the cross where you hand it over to Jesus. You just say, Lord, sort of like when Jesus said forgive. Remember he talked about, he told Peter, and Peter said, how many times should I forgive? Jesus said, Peter goes, seven. And he goes, no, seven times, 70, I say to you. And he goes, what are you talking about? It's like, to me, I hear the Lord saying, you know what, when you forgive, those things come back up, forgive again. When it comes back, I forgive again. You know, forgive again. Keep forgiving until that thing loses its grip over our lives and it can't define us anymore. It, there's a way of getting free in God. And so when we say, you know, give it to the Lord, welcome the Lord into our life. Welcome the Lord into the damaged place. Welcome the Lord into the hurt. Welcome the Lord into the unfairness. Remind ourselves at the cross that there's a lot of hurt and unfairness right there. But he, he did it for us. He knows our heart. He knows our feelings. But we will never live life well by being hurt and angry and resentful and bitter. It's just too short, and God has too many people for us to love and to be grateful for, to focus on the things that don't work right all the time. We get, there are times when we do our best. We ask God to help us. Give us grace, Lord, but I can't control this. I got to let it be. You see? Moses says, you're understanding me. You don't understand my heart is a good. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm on your side. Get away from us. That's the feeling, and we understand that. Now, last thing I'll say, and this will be the last piece, is that and it's connected in a certain way because it, it's a reminder to me that Moses is going to, look, there are times where God wants to, listen, reawaken things and dreams in our lives. There are times where, maybe I'll put it this way, where he wants to reclaim the troubled or the violated, the, the damaged places of our lives. And that these places that we've been, because you see, you look at him and go, oh, well, yeah, Moses, he thought he was, he surrendered everything for God. But that wasn't the only pain he carried. The other pain he carries and it's going to show up in his interaction with God around that burning bush is he feels rejected. He feels rejected by his own people. They wanted nothing to do with him. At least that's how he saw it. And he think about it. I did this for God, but you don't even see it. I did it for you too. Nothing. Fine. And you know what the implication is? That as the years tick away, that Whatever that was back in Egypt, that's so long ago. That's a distant thing. That's I, what, a dream, an illusion, a mirage in the desert, not whatever else. But you know what God's about to do? God reminds us. And he's going to do it in Moses, but it's for all of us to remember. He's a God who awakens things. He awakens, he awakens. So much of this series is about dreams. It's about how God can awaken things, reawaken things in our lives, how God can ignite for the first time certain things that we've never had happen before in us. God's an amazing God. And if we're open to his work in our lives, he can set us free. 
He can do new things. He's got new chapters to write. He's got people ultimately, ultimately for us to be a part of setting, setting free and giving life to. I mean, I'm telling you, there's no, no question that what God can do. It, it's, it's so amazing to me. I mean, you think about it. What happens when we think like Moses, not only have I missed God's word, but I messed up God's plan. I didn't just miss his word. That's, I thought I knew. I didn't hear. Obviously didn't. But I did worse than that. I messed the whole thing up. Forget it all. But see, God is a God of mercy. Second, third, I mean, God's, God keeps working in our lives. He keeps contending with us. He's challenging us to, to grow, to get better, to get through things, to not be defined by stuff that would just hold us back, our past, um, our relational breakdowns that can so easily just define us, and defeat us, and discourage us, and devour us away. Look, the closing song we're, we're, we're going to share is called Mercy Will Prevail. It has everything to do, and it's a very poetic song. And I love, one of the things I love about the song is it leads us right to the cross, which is where I think we ultimately need to go. But in the song, it talks about how, you know what? Sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we have, we have areas where we feel apathetic. There are times where we feel crushed by a word. There are times where we feel, um, you know, like we're, we're ap- apathetic, regretful, and dismayed. And in these failures, and in these places, God's mercy shows up in amazing ways. And you know what? That's awesome. And, um, you know, Lord, we so much want you to be a part of our lives. We don't always understand you. We don't even, we don't, there's a lot of things we don't always understand. But one thing we do know is, is that you're an amazing God who keeps working in our lives. And you love us so much. You've given your only begotten son for us. You, um, you have dreams for us to embrace. You have things in our lives you want to reawaken. You have hurts that you want us to get past. You have, you have forgiveness that you want to allow to heal the, the bitter wound. You want to make the bitter water sweet water, Lord. You're the God who can do things that nobody else can do. No, you know, no one else can do it. You can do it. And so, Lord, I just, I just want to pray that as we close this service out, that you would just, you would just remind us to not hold on to things, uh, not just be defined by the hurts of our lives, but to be a, seek to be the people of blessing that you have called us and, and birthed us to be. And just pray for that. Let mercy prevail in our lives. Let the grace of God prevail over our lives. We welcome you into these lives. Bless this closing song. Bless our time of giving as many of us do this as as an expression of our commitment to you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, God.